0: Hi, book lovers. This is Ellen Hildebrand, best selling author of 30 books, including The Hotel Nantucket and The Perfect Couple.
1: And this is Tim Ehrenberg, creator of Tim Talks Books. And you're listening to Books, Beach and Beyond, presented by N Magazine.
0: We'll be diving into the wonderful world of books and featuring special guests from best selling and award winning writers, publishing industry insiders, agents and editors, book influencers,
1: and more. There's nothing Ellen and I love more than talking about books. And our favorite question to ask each other is, what are you reading? But we'll go even further here on the show, exploring the craft of writing, the process of book publishing, and that wonderful connection a reader has with a favorite book.
0: But before we head into our episode, we wanna take this opportunity to thank our incredible premier sponsors, Nantucket Book Partners, Marine Home Center, The Nantucket Hotel, cartelina and nantucket looms
1: without their generous support we wouldn't be able to bring you these fascinating conversations with some of the most dynamic leaders from the book world so thank you
0: and now on to the show hi tim
1: hello how are we today good, good, good. i want to talk about books that make you cry do books make you cry they do all the time do you have some titles
0: yeah, I mean, one of the books that made me cry so hard, I almost didn't recover, was Every Last One by Anna Quinlan, which is one of my very... I haven't read that. Oh my gosh, it came out, I don't know when, but years ago. One of my favorite books of all time, absolutely loved it.
1: A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara for uh, me yeah. destroyed me. I think I still could think about that and start crying again.
0: Yeah, Hamnet, I thought was really was really sad I have to say <laughs> I cry like at my own novels like three of them when I've been writing them have made me sob mm-hmm. The Matchmaker 28 Summers and Winter Solstice the last book in the Winter Street series inconsolably crying yeah and, I sobbed at Matchmaker and my boyfriend thinks I'm ridiculous because he's like you wrote it why are you crying <laughs> because like, it, it's I'm so sad so, I, spent, I mean, 28 Summers too oh my goodness but
1: well, when you spend time with those characters I mean I think it makes sense yeah On today's show, we have the writing sensation that is Kristen Hanna, the award winning and best selling author of more than 20 novels, including the international blockbuster 2015's The Nightingale, immediate number one bestsellers The Great Alone from 2018, and The Four Winds in 2021. Firefly Lane, her beloved novel about two best friends, was the number one Netflix series around the world in the week it came out. The Nightingale is also in production with TriStar Pictures, a former attorney. Kristen lives in the Pacific Northwest, but she's here with us today. Hi, Kristen.
0: Hi, guys. I'm so excited to be here. This is my first
2: podcast, I think. So very exciting. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, I feel super. (laughs) That is
1: so exciting. Well, we will not disappoint. We're honored. We hope we will not disappoint.
0: Okay. So for our listener, Kristen, for those who, you know, a lot of people know your later novels, right? Super popular. The Nightingale was like a huge breakout book for you. But can you tell us a little bit about how you got started?
2: Oh, gosh, it was so long ago. You know, I started in historical romance like a million years ago. And the way it actually started, I mean, not to go into it too much unless you're interested. But when I was at the end of my law school years, my mother was dying of breast cancer. And so we were spending a lot of time together at the hospital. And at one point I was complaining about, you know, my classes or whatever And she said, you know, honey, you really shouldn't worry about it so much. You're going to be a writer anyway. And it was just such a weird, a weird thing. And I was too young to understand really how important this time was. And clearly she wanted to talk about something else. And so we decided to write a book together. That was sort of the beginning. You know, we we, of course, being mother and daughter, fought about what kind of book to write I wanted to do horror because I'm <laughs> a big like horror fantasy geek and she was a big romance reader. And so we decided on historical romance and that
0: was sort of the the very beginning of all of it for me. That is just amazing. Okay. So did the book you wrote with your mother ever get published? <laughs> no,
2: it was. In fact, I found it. I was cleaning out when I moved recently And I found it in a box with a note to my son on top of it that says, do not publish even after my death. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's one of those things where for me anyway, I didn't come into this whole thing thinking I had talent, thinking I had a voice, thinking I had something to say. I really came into writing because I wanted to be an at-home mom. I mean, that was really the bottom line. And so, you know, romance was a really
0: great way to learn my craft when you couldn't leave the house, right? That's amazing. Okay, so t- since okay, that is a very good story about writing the book with your mother and then saying to your son, "Never publish this, even after I die." <laughs> well, so I feel like Kristen. A lot of people want to be, you know, have a stay-at-home mom like excellent careers, like being a novelist. How did you make that work?
2: Well, I I started, of course, when I got pregnant. I had a bad pregnancy, and so I went into labor at 14 weeks. Oh dear God! So I yeah. So I was in bed from then on. I was either in the hospital or at home from 14 weeks on, and this was like 1987. There was literally nothing to do. You know, I could watch uh, The Price is Right. Yeah. Or Erica Kane was also bedridden. By the way, <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: wait, what was Erica Kane? Was that was that One Life to Live or? All my children.
1: All
0: my children. My children. My children. Children. Yeah. It. And so I, you know, I pulled out all that
2: stuff that my mom and I had talked about, and I just thought, I'll write a book. I've got like six or seven months. How hard can it be? I'll give it a shot. And and of course, by the time I realized that it was hard, I loved it. And then I knew that I wasn't going to be able to have any more kids, so I really wanted to to be at home. And I was fortunate enough that my husband said, you know, we can make this work. Let's give you until first grade. Okay. And see if you can make this work. And so I really then attacked writing the way I attacked everything else, like all in. And I didn't sell the book that my mom and I started, but I sold my first book when my son was two. What year is this? The year. The first book came out in 1991. Okay. Awesome. And- and
0: then I did a book a year for quite a while. And can you talk a little bit about your sales history at that point? Like what kind of things are, because publishing was different then, okay? So, and and we all know it, right? I worked in publishing. Yeah. I think my first publishing job was in 1992. So I have sort of a handle on the the landscape. So things were different, but what was your sales history like?
2: Well, I've had a really interesting, and I've always had a sort of an interesting and unusual career arc. And mostly that's because, I don't tend to do the same thing over and over again. So, of course, I started in historical romance and my first book was a very small, small print run. Gotcha. A very, you know, few people read it. But one of the people who actually read it was a woman named Susan Peterson, who at that time was the publisher of Ballantine. I guess, maybe okay. more than Ballantine. But so my second trip run was like 300,000. Oh my gosh. And yeah, it was in in the day when nobody had that. And it was a terrible cover, terrible book, (laughs) you know, didn't go so well for me. And so it's always been, you know, sort of up and down, up and down. And then, and as I have discovered, like every six or seven years, I wipe the slate clean and reinvent myself. And sort of then change the paradigm going forward. So the first time I did that was in about 1996 when I wrote my first hardcover, which was a book called On Mystic Lake. Okay. And it was, they called it women's fiction. They didn't know what to call it in those days. Absolutely right. Yeah. I wasn't on the New York Times. It wasn't romance. I wasn't literary. So they just didn't know. They didn't know what to Um, call it. Yeah. And I had a really good editor who who sort of taught me what I, I needed to know going forward. And then seven years later, I wrote Firefly Lane. Yep. And then seven years later, I wrote The Nightingale. And so I just keep, I guess, sort of changing. So I don't really know. It's It's weird, my sales. I thought for sure, honestly, that The Great Alone would fail and I would be able to sort of reboot after The Nightingale. But that didn't happen. Well, th- could, yeah, good thing.
1: And they might not have known what to call it. But i if my co-host here is the Queen of the Beach Reads, I'm going to give you the title, The Queen of the Ugly Cry Reads. <laughs> I was reading The Nightingale in a hotel lobby, sobbing my eyes out, and everyone kept okay. saying, Sir, are you okay? Saw the title of the book. And they're like, Oh, we get it. We get it. So my question that I love to ask writers is, Well, first... Do you cry when you're writing scenes like that? And what does it take to create a scene that evokes that much emotion that a grown man is sobbing in a hotel lobby?
2: Oh, gosh, that's a that's a big question. Okay, so first of all, I know people think I'm like Kathleen Turner in Romancing the Stone, you know, typing away with the cat and the Kleenex and sobbing. I don't usually in fact, I never cry in my own stuff. And The clearest reason for that is the first draft is never what you read. The first draft is me getting out what I know needs to be there without feeling it to the extent that I lose control. So on those really emotional scenes, and Nightingale had a lot of them, I do a lot of going back and layering and layering and cutting, trying to get down to just the emotion that is needed. And just as an aside, you know, I remember, I think it was, well, it was well before on Mystic Lake, but I remember the first time I started hearing that people were crying at my books. I called my agent and I said, my career is over. Who is going <laughs> to pay this kind of money to cry, you know? And
1: it's good um, therapy.
0: Yeah, apparently. <laughs> yeah, apparently. I mean, I also feel like I love crying. In a novel. I do cry at my own novels, like my novel, 28 Summers. I still can't read the ending. I can't read the ending without crying. But that's just because I'm so close to them. And then you just, then they. Matchmaker,
1: <laughs> too. I matchmaker, I have sobbed also, in Matchmaker. Yeah.
0: Well, it's different, too, when they're
2: done. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't read, I don't cry along the way. There are a few that have made me cry when I get to, like, you know, page proofs and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. I love crying at books because that means you felt it so profoundly. And so I always, when someone says that they cried at my book, I always take that as an enormous compliment. Yeah. And I know that Tim definitely meant it that way. Okay, I'm so, (laughs) I want to go back a little bit, be so intrigued because, you know, I'm interested in labels and literature. People call me a beach novelist or whatever they call me, beach read novelist. I want to know, because you have reinvented yourself so many times, I mean, have you ever felt labeled? You said just now, so interestingly, that, They didn't know what to call you because there was no was like sort of on the edge of chiclet. So for me, chiclet was like Bridget Jones's diary. And that isn't even really what you were writing. So did you ever feel constricted or fall between the cracks? Or can you talk a little bit about the labels? Yeah, I mean, I
2: actually I fought against that from the moment I got out of what I consider, you know, historical romance, which was straight up genre. I knew it. They knew it. Everybody knew it. It was clear. My books didn't really fit there, but at least I understood what it was. And I remember back in the day saying to my my editor, my people, whoever, there has to be a market that lies somewhere between like back then it was Laverle Spencer and Ann Tyler. Right. I said there was nothing in this huge, you know, vast land between them. So you were either literary or you were Danielle Steele. Correct. There was yep. nothing else. And I kept thinking that that what I wanted to read was somewhere in between there. Yeah. And so, you know, they started with women's fiction with me, which was okay, because it was kind of new. But as time went on, they started putting more and more and more books that were unlike me with this label And that made it difficult then because I know you remember this back in the day. There was like five cover styles. You know, (laughs) yeah. You could, you know, it didn't matter what I wrote, they were going to put a girl in a hammock, right? You know, on it. And so it was it's been this constant push more than anything with cover and flat copy. Yeah. Because you know, I wanted them to distinguish and I had to find a publisher who was willing to make that distinction to say that hey you aren't this let's go for this right and you know it's it's difficult because i think with books by women for women there is a real urge to compartmentalize and to pare down to the the biggest common denominator and forget
0: everything else right it is not a nuanced situation in the no. women's fiction <laughs>
1: Well, even the label women's fiction, I mean, I read both of your books and obviously it's not, I mean, I just don't think that label even fits. I mean, it's just a good story. (laughs) And that's, and I don't know why it needs to be um, a gender role necessarily.
2: And even just the beach read, you know, there's so much within that. I mean, look at the power of your books. Look at what you have to say about women and families and marriage and life and growing up and, and emotions. I mean, all of that is, is big stuff, and I don't know why we have to
0: label it. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break from our conversation with Kristen Hanna so we can thank one of our premier sponsors, the Nantucket Hotel. Yes, there really is a Hotel Nantucket called the Nantucket Hotel, and it's the island's only year-round hotel nestled downtown. Come see why Hilder Babes return every year to one of my favorite island hangouts and the inspiration for my novel. New this season is Sailor's Valentine, Nantucket's most romantic dining spot on the front porch. Small bites and craft cocktails. Discover the new look of the lobby and dine in the breeze for delicious coastal cuisine. Done eating? Why not join the Nantucket Club and work out, swim, or get a massage at downtown's only fitness club? It's all happening at the
1: Nantucket Hotel. So you wrote an entire novel about this place. (laughs) I did. What is the best thing about the Nantucket Hotel?
0: I mean, I think the best thing is it's family owned. It's independently owned. So it's not a corporation. You're not checking into a Hilton. It feels very specific to place. It's absolutely gorgeous. Everything is hand curated. It has just a very Nantucket vibe to it, which I absolutely love
1: the staff is so friendly
0: yes the best staff and the amenities like the gym i started by going to the i joined the club at that point where you could join the the gym and the pool and i was there in the morning to work out and then i went in the afternoon and i wrote i think three novels sitting by the pool
1: wow and i think it's being redesigned right it's like everything brand new
0: completely redone it is absolutely stunning and now they have the new sailor's valentine little cocktail small bites place on the porch. Well, we'll have to
1: go check that out for sure. We will. Thank you, Nantucket Hotel. Thank you. I have a question about, do your own publishers label you? Like if you both wanted to turn in a new book, like, and Ellen, you submitted a sci-fi horror story and Kristen, you submitted something just way out there. Would your publishers take it? What is the contract like that, what you have to give them each summer or Kristen with your book? Like what... Does it have to be what you've done previously, or not?
0: I mean, I'll I'll just add on to that, Kristen. Do you feel like because the Nightingale was such a monster hit that you have to continue to write sort of women women's I'm going to call it women's historical fiction? You know what I'm talking about? Do you feel like you have to keep going with that? You know, there's a lot of discussion about that following the
2: Nightingale. Actually, that the sort of common Advice at the time was, well, you need to write another World War II book. You know, you need to solidify your place here. And my comment was the last thing I'm going to write is a World War II book because then I'll never be out. I'll just be in another, you know, box. Right. And so that's why I wrote, you know, The Great Alone, which was 1970s kind of, kind of a dark book, actually. And I don't think that. How do I say this? I had like a dark night of the soul after the Nightingale because when you have this kind of success, expectations change instantly. Your own as well as everybody Absolutely. else. Absolutely.
0: It's almost debilitating. I mean, I found it to be almost debilitating. And One of the reasons why I'm retiring. One of the no. reasons why I'm retiring is because I cannot sustain the pressure of doing better each Book. I just can't. You don't. Here's the thing. This is what I learned with the
2: Nightingale. And if this can help, you know, we don't have to sustain this level of success because that's not why we did this in the first place. You know, so what I would do, I mean, I could retire at any moment, but what I'm more likely to do is write a fantasy novel and say, take it off the table. I'm no longer you know, what you thought I was. Let's try this.
1: Revisit that book with your mother, you mean? Well, maybe, maybe. (laughs) I love questions about characters. And Kristen, you write characters that are pushed to their limits. And at least the three last three books of yours that I've read, World War II, Living in Alaska, The Great Depression. What interests you about human behavior being pushed to the brink like that?
2: I mean, I guess I just think that That character is revealed by hardship, you know, and I didn't really realize it, but I was doing this in romance 25 years ago. So this is obviously the thing that interests me, the sort of the crucible of fire. And I think there's still that geek girl in me that loves, you know, the Lord of the Rings, all the fantasy, all the world building, all of the the fight between good and evil. And I think in some ways I have kind of turned that into getting through ordinary life, extraordinary life for ordinary women. I mean, the four
0: wins, okay, things get so bad. And then the reader <laughs> <So is> just, <laughs> the reader is just like, please. And you know that, I mean, I love books like this where things are just so bad and then you know it's coming, like you know things are going to get better and you're just reading like, please let things get better, please let things get better. (laughs) And you're just like, it's such a massive relief, but it's like a real payoff too. Like that that book in particular, I was like, oh no, when all our stuff got washed away in the gully, I'm like, no, (laughs) this is not happening. What
1: are you doing to us? Oh my goodness.
0: So one of the things I'm interested in, Kristen, are people's processes, but more like what keeps you up at night? Because I can tell you, like, I'm in the middle of writing my last novel right now and sort of, you know, coming off our our previous question, you know, the pressure for writing my last novel is enormous. And so I'm up at night mm-hmm. going, is it going to be any good? You know, will it, will it, I'm I'm constantly with every book, really just up at night worrying about it. What keeps you up at night? And do you have any superstitions or rituals when you're writing or when a book comes out?
2: No, I don't have any. I don't, I'm not. I don't have any superstitions or rituals or anything that I sort of do on a. Well, drinking wine does that count? I drink a lot of. Yeah, wine,
0: I mean, we'll count it before a
2: book comes out. Yeah,
0: I know you love wine. I, and you love. I know you. I, you love champagne, and you've sent me some beautiful champagne. What keeps me up at night?
2: I think it sort of changes. You know, initially, the the most difficult in the process, the most difficult period for me is actually the period that I'm in right now, which is I need an idea. Okay. And to me, that is the, I mean, it's the most unattractive part of the process. Nobody wants to be around me because I haven't decided that I write a certain kind of book in my own mind. I'm constantly exploring everything, you know, supernatural fantasy. I'm I'm constantly all over the board. And it's just really difficult for me to find an idea that I want to spend three years on. Right. And and one of the things I learned in the book a year deal that I was doing for so long was that it was really hard to give myself breathing room in the idea stage when I was on that kind of a schedule. And it was really hard to push myself to another level when I was on that. So I needed like, I need a whole year just to kind of think and then,
0: and then edit. Right. That's sort of where I am now. So I'm just going to say to our listeners, so what that makes me think, Kristen, is that you turned in, you and I chatted in February of 2021, when the four, right before the four winds came out and you had, you were starting a novel. So I'm guessing. That that novel's now finished.
2: Yeah. I it's well, I'm in copy edit right now. Okay. So it's coming out in February of twenty twenty four. Okay. And
0: yeah. Are you, you allowed dip? to tell us what it's about <laughs> or
2: I finally am actually, which is very exciting. It's called The Women
0: and it's set during the Vietnam War. Okay, that's right. I had read that somewhere. Okay. Are they in combat? They might be. Okay. We won't.
1: Oh. I will I? Will I be reading. sobbing?
0: It's <laughs> one. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that. Oh, that <laughs> made, it made her cry. Okay, yeah. it made Kristen cry.
1: <laughs> you know, writing seems like such a great job, but it really is both of your jobs. It's your nine to fives. It's your I have to go to work today. Talk to me about those days that it's you can barely probably write a sentence, let alone an entire book. Like what? What do you do on those days?
2: Do you mean emotionally I can't write a sentence or I'm too busy doing other things to write a sentence?
1: I guess either. I mean, I would just, I mean, if you think about anyone's nine to five, it's like sometimes some days are just not jiving. And so on those days, what do you, what do you do?
2: I don't know. That's not, you know, for me, the, the really, truly difficult, besides coming up with the idea and doing, getting wrangling that the biggest difficult for me, difficult period for me, honestly, is everything that has come to be a part of this job that like wasn't in the original contract,
0: (laughs) you know? I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh gosh. Yes. Oh, you have to market it. You have to do social media. You have to, I mean, it's, 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 it's a year round. I mean, it's endless. It's endless. I agree
2: it's not something I'm good at actually, you know, the whole social media being out there. I mean, the reason I do this is because I like to sit in my by myself, you know? <laughs> yes. Just, so that's been really difficult to sort of manage everything that comes with this. I mean, everyone says, oh, you need to have someone who does your social media for you. But I don't like that idea. I, you know, right. You so want it to be organic. For me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I have this big topic I wanted. I've been dying to talk to somebody about it. You are the perfect person, <laughs> the perfect person. And that is the topic of blurbing. Okay. Right. I like, can listen. <laughs> Audible sigh. Audible Listeners, sigh if you hands. could have
1: seen Kristen's face. Okay. <laughs>
0: Blurping. So I go away to the Caribbean for two months and I came back, Kristen. And as you might imagine, the stack of ARCs that was waiting for me was over my head. Yeah. And I want to talk to you. And I know it's exactly the same for you. How many books do you get sent per week? That's not really the most interesting question. How do you decide what you're going to read? Do you ever feel don't say any names. Do you ever feel pressured to read things? And what part of the blurbing process do you find the most exhausting? Uh, such a loaded question. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love it.
2: <laughs> you know, here's what I've decided after all these years in the business and 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 all of these books that I get, because I just got home from... Uh, California too, and I mean boxes and boxes and boxes. Yeah. So, first and foremost, I look at blurbing as as karma and a kindness that I can do. And so, I do try to the best of my ability. Honestly, if anyone's ever done me a favor or been kind to me or helped me or anything. I really tried to constantly give back as much as I can. That being said, of course, I just can't get to all of them. So then it comes down to have they done something that intrigues me? I am very unlikely at this moment, for example, to blurb a World War II book. Right. I'm just so tired of, you know, reading them. So if you send me a fantasy or you. Okay. You know, it's it's a much better likelihood. But mostly I just try to do I just try to be kind because I remember so much what it was like back in the day when we were trying to get them. Yeah. And and everybody said no,
0: you know. Yeah. Not me. You were the the very first book I was ever asked to blurb was Firefly Lane. Really? Yes. Thank you. And I loved it and I blurbed it and you sent me Joe Malone Lotion. My favorite. Which was very cotton. I thought, oh my God, I get a, I get a prison for doing I mean, this. This is so exciting. Sometimes and,
1: blurbing has to be fun, though. I mean, if you love a book, I mean we're all readers here. It's that's the greatest gift you can give is I mean, to I, say how I, much you love a book. I,
0: I will have I'm gonna go on record here by saying that I think blurbing I want it to be over as a thing. <laughs> the the perf, I the thing I far prefer. You heard it here live. The thing I far prefer. And you know this because you guys follow me on Instagram. The thing I far prefer is to read something organically and then post about it on my Instagram. That, mm-hmm. And I feel like that sells more copies also. I'm not sure how many people... I mean, Kristen, what do you think? How many people are reading the blurbs? You know what? Honestly, though, I think
2: at least looking back at my own career and the early days, the blurb was more to get the publisher behind you than it was to get... You know, a reader reading you because, yes, I think Instagram really makes a difference. It does. And and that's nice because you can do it sort of, you know, organically. But of course, no good deed, you know, goes unpunished because as soon as we do that, they send us more books. Right. And so, you know, you do feel the pressure
0: to do it for everybody. Right. And I'm going to tell a story now because I had someone... In the who is you know it's it's not so much the writer themselves right it's their it's their editor or their publicist someone pursue me so relentlessly for a blurb that I got completely turned off and I thought I don't I I can't even remember if I I think I feel like I didn't have time to read the book and the pursuit was like so intense that I just thought to myself <laughs> I'm not now I'm not going to read this because you've bothered me so much so has that ever happened to you or do you have any other like bad blurring story no but you know what
2: i also think that you and i have done a lot yeah and if at any moment we decide to join the the people who say you know not anymore i don't think i don't think that's a bad thing right
0: okay good i feel i feel marginally <laughs> you feel let justified off the, i feel marginally let off I head.
1: feel like it's close <laughs> <laughs>
0: And now a short break to thank our sponsor, Triple Eight Distillery. As my readers know, Nantucket is known for its natural beauty and also for its nightlife. Our local distillery at the Cisco Brewers Campus has recently added tequila to their lineup and we highly recommend it as an ingredient in your next night out. Available both as a refreshing canned tequila lime seltzer and in traditional Blanco and barrel aged styles that are guaranteed fun in a bottle. They even sent notch whiskey barrels to Mexico to age the Anejo. We say cheers to that. Ask for it at your favorite package store on island or in New England, or better yet, visit this distillery at the source on Nantucket.
1: I mean, there's nothing more delicious than tequila in the summer.
0: I absolutely love it. I cannot wait to get these seltzer, these tequila lime seltzers.
1: Yeah, and then, I think I've tasted one of Wendy. So Wendy, who owns the bookstores, also is one of the co-founders of the brewery and everything. I tasted one of hers, and it's delicious.
0: Yeah, I'm, and you know what I'm going to do is also get the traditional blanco and and use that for shots. I mean, my summer is going to be bananas, dude.
1: <laughs> okay, well, you. <laughs> I am
0: so excited for this.
1: <laughs> well, you'll see her on Wednesdays at her signings, and we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if I'm hungover.
0: Thank you, Cisco. Thank you. I want to talk about Hollywood. Firefly Lane is finished. When you and I talked in February twenty one, it was it had just it was just about to come out, right and and it did remarkably well for Netflix. I mean, I saw all the statistics; it was incredible. How did that feel? Can you talk a little bit about the process? My favorite part of the show was the dual timelines. I'm sure lots of people have said that. My favorite character was actually young Kate. With her big glasses, because she looked just like me when I was in middle school. I mean, her, her enormous glasses. I was, I loved her so much. It was well done. Um, so can you talk about that adaptation and how that went for you? Sure. And <laughs> let me say congratulations to you, by the way.
2: I mean, finally, thank you. A cast. And finally, yes, <laughs> finally. So thank you. Uh, I cannot wait to watch. It's an interesting thing. They can follow your work or not follow your book. And and with mine, with Firefly Lane, they sort of did both. Sometimes they followed it. Sometimes they didn't. I thought that the most remarkable part of it was sort of watching the parts that I had written that I cared about come to life in a whole new way. You know, Katherine Heigl played a very different Tully in some ways than I had created. And I loved you know watching the actors do that and it was a lot of fun it sold a lot of books which was surprising to me i didn't actually think that would happen so that was great and it was fun and occasionally heartbreaking also you know the whole the whole hollywood dance is one step forward 10 steps back two steps sideways oh i know you know it's a long and and difficult process and All I can say is enjoy the ride and, you know, be as involved as you want. I remember talking to Harlan Coben at one point and he's so involved. He's like looking at costumes. Oh, my goodness. They're every step of the way. And I was really the other end of, you know, of that. And in fact, it was funny when they invited me to the table read where which is this thing where everybody sits down with the script and the whole cast just reads through the script the day before shooting begins. And so they invited me up there and it was in this big conference room in Vancouver. And, you know, they had all the scripts set out on the table and then they had all these chairs for, I guess, spectators or whoever, assistants around the room. And so I just went and, you know, and took a seat in one of the chairs around the room and you know, when they found out I was there, they were like, oh my gosh, you know, we have a table. <laughs> we have a chair at the table. You're right in the middle. This is really important. It was your book. And, you know, so that was really nice. It was really fun. And I will say the the cast in particular felt really strongly about the material. But you're right in that it has to, it has to live and breathe as its own piece of art. And sometimes Especially with my books, they're so internal yeah. that you have to figure out how to, you know, make them a plot that people want to watch. Also,
1: yeah. Any I, updates on the Nightingale?
2: Well, we were two days before filming when COVID hit, oh. and then I think they were almost getting ready again, and now the writers' strike. Oh no. is going on, and I don't believe—at least with features—I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't think they can film if the writer isn't on set or they don't film unless the writer's on set. So, no, nothing
0: going forward now. That is, I know, I know because you and I had the same, had the same producer, I think at the time that they were in Bulgaria, right? Ready to shoot and had to send everybody home. I can't imagine how, like on top of everything else that was devastating (laughs) about about the pandemic, everybody had to come home you know, from Bulgaria. And then the way Hollywood goes, like people's schedules don't line up. And it's so, it's so hard to get it back together. So, but I mean, everybody wants to see it, Kristen. So we have to believe, we have to believe. She's
1: like, I do too, right? It will happen.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know, one thing you, you definitely understand after you get to even a little bit of this process is how much magic and serendipity and just straight up luck it takes for all of these people to come together at the same time with the same vision to do something like this. Exactly. You know, I I remember when I, when I got to Vancouver and you see, you know, cars and sets and sound stages and you realize that your little book know. is like You know, this behemoth that is employing hundreds of people. Yeah. It's a very surreal moment.
1: We are going to end here with a little thing we like to do called the lightning round. Oh, no.
2: (laughs) It's easy. (laughs) There's not many.
1: (laughs) I'm going to start and I'm going to ask you what your favorite moment in history is.
2: In my own history or in like world
1: history? In world history.
2: Oh, my gosh. My favorite moment in world history end of the Vietnam War.
0: Yeah. So you're, because I, and you know what makes me think that also is because like the 70s portion of Firefly Lane is so well done. Right? It's like that late 60s, early 70s, like, and then of course into the 80s. I just wanted to say that about Firefly Lane, like the the historic details or the vintage details, whatever you want to call them, are so perfect in that show. They really are. Down to the hair, the curling iron, dude. (laughs) Well, Kate was me. I mean, let's face it. The glasses. (laughs) I know. So great. Okay, so what TV shows are you binging? Well, Don't Tell Me the End, Succession. Okay, don't tell me the end.
2: Yeah, I've got 25 (laughs) minutes left. Me too. Uh, 25 (laughs) minutes. You know, one of the, like for so many of us, one of the the pluses of COVID was just this deep dive into how amazing television has become. And so Schitt's Creek, one of my... All-time favorite. Amazing. Uh, Loved it. A show that probably not everybody watched that I absolutely adored is one called Rectify. Okay. Uh, so that's my... What, my what's the premise? Show. Premise of Rectify? It, it's about a man. Uh, yeah. Uh, when he's like 16, I think he gets convicted of rape and murder and he's on death row for 20 years and then he is released. And he has to come home to this very small town where everybody, including his own family, thinks he's guilty. And he really has never, he's almost basically autistic, you know, on the spectrum from having been held away so long. Oh
0: my gosh, I would love that.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna have to look that up. Okay, the last book that made you cry.
2: Last book that made me cry. I am going to go with. Chris Whitaker's We Begin at the End. Oh, I loved that book.
0: We loved, both, we both loved,
1: loved, that loved that book. It. Loved
2: that book. Now, that's a book that I came across. You know, I can, I think it's an Amy Einhorn book. I'm not sure. But it was there on my desk. I opened it up. Never heard of it. Never heard of him. Read it and just, you know, became an acolyte. It was so good. Yeah.
1: I interviewed him on Instagram Live and he is the kindest British gentleman. And that book was so and amazing.
0: He was, he's so happy about His success.
1: Yeah. Well, he deserves it. But like just
0: genuinely happy. Okay. And our last question, Christian, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now?
2: I just opened it. Yellow face.
0: Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. I
1: gave it to Ellen.
0: That's (laughs) next. That's next for me. I am. I'm reading You Are Here by, what do we say? Oh, God. Sarah Lynn Greenberg. But yellow face is next for me.
1: Yes. You're both going to love it. Because I think it just turns the public... Everything that we were just talking about in the publishing industry, I think it's there's a lot of nuggets in there that I think you'll love.
0: I'm so excited.
2: I I love both of you, but I love you recommending books and telling people and I'm sad about this whole retirement thing, so I'm...
1: as she's doing her ellen happy dance here.
0: <laughs> I could not be happier. You know and it's not it's not really retirement I mean, my daughter and I so in a nice sort of reversal to you and your mom, my daughter and I are writing two novels together that are set at a New England boarding school. Yeah, she Shelby is a junior or is finishing her junior year at a very fancy boarding school in New, in uh, Rhode Island and the things that happened Kristen this year last year both since she's been there are so scandalous that I said to her we have to write a novel about this about this boarding school thing and i went to my publisher and they were like oh we don't want one book we want two books and so now we have a she and i have a two book deal to do like junior year senior year at this adult novel very very adult yeah
1: i can't wait i love a boarding school novel i yeah. love
0: oh so that'll okay. be coming but See, it's... it's i'm retiring with the nantucket summer books or
1: going yeah, right it's a loose retire it's kind of like taking like <laughs> it's taking your ownership of what you're doing yeah i think that's what it yeah does. i uh, think readers need to realize well i'm still pulling get a ellen Kristen Bush.
0: hannah and doing something completely different <laughs> which i love
1: <laughs> that's a perfect ending Kristen. thank you so much for being on the show today you, we Kristen. had so much fun thanks bye. all for listening happy reading
0: you're the best bye guys hi book lovers ellen hildebrand
1: and tim Ehrenberg.
0: here again Just a few closing notes before you leave. We want to thank our wonderful premier sponsors, Nantucket Book Partners, Marine Home Center, The Nantucket Hotel, Cartelina, and Nantucket Looms for their generous support in the making of this show.
1: And we also want to thank our team behind the scenes, beginning with N Magazine. We want to thank our producer, Emmy Duncan, our technical director, Kit Noble, and our editor, Brian Murphy.
0: We hope you'll keep tuning in for more book talks featuring a stellar lineup of special guests all season long.
1: So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: See you next time, and happy Happy reading. reading!